0: Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and chavruta Yerdana Asband. Our daf of the day: Masacha Beita Daf Kaf, page twenty. I just want to acknowledge, um, and I feel like I've said this before. Maybe I'll even say it again. These dafim are long. uh, The season is intense. Uh, I know that we, perhaps I shouldn't acknowledge this, but we have find found ourselves pressed of finding time to to prepare and to record. It will not surprise me if at least some of you. Challenge and finding time to prepare the DAF recording and so on. I want to acknowledge that and also cheer you on because I feel like you know one of the big strengths of us all being in this together is that we're all in it together and we know that there's a challenge and that we can catch up and that the DAF is here at the same time. Of course, it waits for nobody, so let's dig in. Um, I want to start at the very top of the DAF. It really actually begins a couple of lines on the previous DAF. We've got a whole discussion here that seems kind of far afield from Erev Tafshilin, from karbanot, from Sukkot, from Yom Tev in general, uh, but it's talking about um, the bringing of, I guess it is the bringing of karbanot and what happens when somebody makes, uh, is it obligated to bring a Korban or is volunteering to bring a Korban? So the Gemara says as follows, again, on the bottom of the previous daf, kid minei Revi Shimon ben Lakish mei Yochanan, so I'm not saying this, but the but the Gemara says as follows: somebody who takes upon himself, as in the formulation of a vow, some kind of oath, uh, a promise, he says, "I am going to bring a korban toda, that's a Thanksgiving offering, and in doing so, I will fulfill my obligation." Because we talked about this a very very long time ago. There's basically five different kinds of korbanot, and they then function in different ways. So if we're talking about a korban toda, that's a korban shlamim, that means that part of it goes to the misbech tashem, and part of it goes to the person who brings it. Right? The idea, and part of it, this is the, it brings happiness, it brings peace. There's all kinds of ways to understand why it's called the shlamim offering, but it also functions in different ways. The primary ways that we know of a korban shlamim being used is one, the korban toda, the Thanksgiving offering, and the other is the Korban Chagiga. So it's the same type of offering that when someone says, I'm going to bring a Korban Todah, I'm going to take it upon myself, or I've got an obligation in this case, rather. Someone who's, who's taken upon himself as a vow that I that he has to bring a Korban Todah, he then says, I'm going to use it to fulfill my obligation of a Korban Chagiga. Uh, the question, of course, is, will that work? Likewise, there's a question of somebody who says, Harini Nazir. He takes upon himself a nazirut. This is a period of, his, of abstention, um, particularly from grapes and grape products, wine, and from cutting his hair. That's the classic nazir. And from not coming in contact with a dead body, um, which, of course, can be a challenge depending on your circumstances. Yeah. So somebody says, I'm a nazir. agaleach mimot maser sheini mahu. What happens if he says, I'm a nazir and I'm going to shave my head? What does it mean he's going to shave his head? He's going to take He's going to purchase the Korban Nazir from the Master Shaini money, meaning theoretically that's Kadosh and that's Kadosh. They're both holy. Can't he do that? Can he use the holy funds for a different holy purpose? So Rabbi Yochanan says, this is going back to Rish Lakish. So Rabbi Yochanan says, according to that Thanksgiving offering, the Korban Toda that he has vowed to bring. He has to bring a korban todah and he cannot uh, he does not fulfill his obligation of the korban chagiga with his korban todah. Likewise somebody who says I'm going to be a nazir and then he has to do his nazir rituals, he cannot then shave his head to bring the nazir offerings purchased with Master Shani money, meaning the answer of Rabbi Yochanan to no, no as much as you'd like to double dip the same carbon or the same money for the same for two different kod, kadosh, two holy purposes. The answer is no; it does not work. Um, the Gemara continues: how gavra, Hahu gavra lehu. We're talking about a case where a guy says to those who are with him, he says, araba me lefloni, brati." In Aramaic, right? This example he says, I'm going to give well, give 400 zoos to so and so, and he can marry my daughter. Meaning, this is not very complimentary to her, he's paying somebody to come marry his daughter. So, if Papa says, All right, take the 400 zoos, sure, pocket that. But as far as the daughter, if you want to marry, the daughter, then marry the daughter. And if you don't want to marry, marry her, never mind that you've been paid to do so, right? The Rav Papa's position is, no, that's not going to work. The Gemara goes on, what does it mean that he said in this manner, give him the money and then let him marry my daughter? Meaning like as if it's a conditional uh, monetary gift. He if you specify the condition first, right? If you say, okay, he can marry my daughter and now give him the money, right? Then in that formulation, then it sounds like if he marries her, gets the money. If he doesn't marry her, he doesn't get the money because the marriage seems to be, the money comes after the marriage in the sentence, which makes it sound contingent upon him following through with that, as opposed to the formulation that that we heard of initially, which is give him 400 zoos, and let him marry my daughter, if anything, it sounds like, you know, he's allowed to marry the daughter because of the money, but he doesn't have to. And that's the rejection, I think, of Rav Papa, of this premise, right? It's not, it's not as we might react nowadays, like, Oh, come on. He's buying somebody off. That's not nice. That's not the issue. The issue is much more technical in terms of what kind of condition are you really making? Does it is it upheld as a condition? And I think that this little section here is talking about exactly this. Like when you have some kind of oath or some kind of promise or some kind of condition and you're using your your words to um, make something obligatory, it has to actually work. And in each of these cases, it doesn't quite work.
1: So I, I think this idea of sort of like mixing two things, uh, you know, you could see why somebody came up with the question or the notion of it.
0: Um, yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. I think it's a good question. I think that the, but I think that the answer is also very telling, right? And I
1: can't tell this was like a theoretical or th- this was actually practical. That's, I you know, I always like to think about is this boundary pushing. Um, I'm not really sure her, like, did they try to come up with this type of scenario or, you know, w- was this actually something that actually happened?
0: Um, oh, I don't know. It reads to me like a hypothetical, but maybe I'm wrong about right, that. I
1: agree with you. I think it reads more like a hypothetical, but you could see why someone would do it. Um, I'm going to hop down to something that starts in the middle, the end of Ahmed Aleph and goes to Ahmed Bet, um, and is uh, a great story that's here on this staff. Um, and especially one because most of this masachat has been dealing with machlokot between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. So I think the story just, you know, brings the machlokot less from the theoretical and more into the practical. Tanu Rabbanan. Masa hazaken chevi ulato So there was a story where Hillel, right? Now we're not talking about Beit Shammai or Beit Hillel, but actual Beit Hillel. Um, who uh, brought his, wanted to bring his burnt offering right to the temple and was going to do smicha'an, on it. So basically the students of Shammai, uh, of Shamite sort of gather around him and amrulon, they say to him, mati vashel behemazo. And they basically say, what's the nature of this animal that you're bringing? In other words, they sort of want to you know, start up with him because they are trying to prevent him from doing smicha because they believe you shouldn't do it because that's what their teacher taught. So he says it's a female, and I brought it as a peace offering because olot are always male offerings. So he swung its tail for them. So basically, they couldn't really tell whether or not it was a male or female, and they left. So very interesting story. So first of all, the idea here that, you know, we think of these as always sort of like theoretical machlo code. But here we see like, no, like the students of come. they sort of really bother Hillel. And Hillel, you know, in a way, sort of, sort of tells a white lie, basically, in order to get them to back off. So I think there's a lot to unpack and think about here. On that day, when that incident became known, right? Because in it's sort of in a way, Hillel basically acquiesces and sort of says he agrees with Shammai. Like he didn't say to them, "No, I'm still bringing. This is a male animal, and I'm bringing anola." He basically says, "No, I'm following what you did. I brought a female, and it's a shlemim." So on that day, Gavra Yadam Shel shamai, Shammai Al Hillel. Right. That basically Beit Shammai gained the upper hand over Beit Helleh. And they sought to establish the halacha according to their opinion. And there was one elder, you know, student of Shammai. Right. And his name was Baba Ben Buta. But he knew that the halacha was like Beit Hillel. So think about this. In other words, you could have ascribed to a certain camp, right, or to a certain yeshiva or to a certain school of thought, but you still know how we passed him. And he understood that we paskin like Beit bait, bait, Hillel. And so he brought all of these, this great sheep from Kedar that were in Yerushalayim and he put them in the of the temple, Ba'amar. Amar. Misha Anybody who wants to come to do smicha should come and do smicha. Now, again, remember, this is an elder student of Beit Shammai. He's basically coming to sort of rectify the situation to make clear that we paskin like Hillel. And so on that day, Beit Hillel sort of, you know, their hand got strengthened, right? And the halacha was established like them. And there was no one who would dispute this in any way. In other words, it was it was basically uh, reestablished. Shuvma said, David Hillel." And then there was another story with a certain student of Beit Hillel, who again brought his ola to the courtyard and wanted to do smicha on it. Matzu tell me, me David Beit One of the talmidim of Beit Shammai found him. Amar he says, to him, Mazo smicha." He says to him, what's this smicha, right? In other words, like, why are you doing this smicha? You know, you're not supposed to do it. Amarlo, ma'zo shtiku And he says, what is this silence? In other words, he's saying, right? Why don't you be quiet? Because you know that the halacha is not established according to that opinion. And he was silenced and he left quietly. So I just love this passage because, you know, again, we very often talk about these machla codes tend to seem like sort of esoteric or intellectual. And here we have a great story that, no, they were very emotional for people. And people tried to do things to sort of convince even Hillel, you know, to sort of do the halacha the other way. And then, you know, but the fact that it's a uh, elder student of Beit Shammai, of Shammai, who really comes to correct the situation, I think tells us a lot that you can learn from a Rebbe. You can learn. Uh, and But at the same time, understand that that may not be how most people passkin, and that that's not really what the majority halakhic opinion is going to be.
0: Um, yes, I think that's true. I think that this is exactly that, like, uh, crafted presentation of something that then surprises us.
1: Right. And, and it, you know, it's it, it, I, I, I think there's just a lot to learn here, right, that we see the very human nature of Makhlokeh. People get very emotional from it. Uh, But yet I think the story ends on a positive note to show us like how it ultimately was corrected. And this whole idea of like Gavra Yadan, that, you know, each one was sort of trying to fight out to be like who the halacha was going to be established like.
0: You would think they wouldn't need to, right? You would think we saw previously several Dapim ago, right? This idea that, well, we already know it's always going to be Bidhil. We don't need to fight it out. It seems that, you know, you say you're bringing the human factor here. I, I feel like I feel like it's almost more dramatic because it's less expected. That's what I mean by surprise I here. I,
1: I, I hear what you what you mean by that, right? Like, it, it is surprising what happens here. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend e. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.